Welcome to The Machine, a podcast from Waterford Institute of Technology. We normally talk about computer science matters and one of the biggest issues in computer science and technology over the last number of years has been security. So this in this episode, we're going to have a beginner's guide to IT security or a beginner's guide to cyber security, uh, whatever you're having yourself. I'm delighted to have three wonderful people who know a lot more about this subject than I do. Uh, we have Jimmy McGibney and John Shepard, who are both lecturers in WIT, also in the Department of Computing and Mathematics. And we also have Judy Kelly, who is a security architect with Red Hat and also a former graduate or a graduate of WIT. Uh, just some housekeeping things out of the way. If you want to follow us on Twitter at machine underscore podcast or machine podcast on Facebook and we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Overcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you want to leave us a nice review, that'd be lovely, but don't worry about it. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about a brief beginner's guide to cybersecurity. And as I said, this is an area I'm quite ignorant of. So I was wondering if we might define some terms at the beginning of the podcast, because there's a lot of stuff there that I'm not even sure what they are. So I might kind of give each of you a term and you might be able to just define what it is for me, if that's okay. So Judy, we might start with yourself. So uh, a brute force attack, what's that? So this is something that um, in essence, somebody continuously trying um, using a computer program or manually, uh, but really it's really effective when using the computer program to crack, for example, somebody's password. So if you had um, a password, say, for example, that wasn't very secure, um, like the word password, um, um, a computer or, or a hacker could actually continuously try to guess that password and effectively brute force the um the actual password itself to gain access to your computer that's a very simple um example one of the other guys might have a more yeah um, i mean it's really just a question of trying all combinations um or that's the simplest way to think about it so think of your pin number for your payment card or for your atm card you know there are four digits in the pin each digit can be zero to nine so there's 10 possibilities for each digit so a brute force attack is just trying all combinations. And for a pin number, that's 10,000, 10 by 10 by 10 by 10. For the password, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, Judy introduced a term there, hacker, which I suppose is, is out there in the kind of public consciousness. Hackers are in popular culture and all sorts of stuff. But what actually is a hacker? Jimmy, while you're, whilst you're speaking, you might as well try and give us a definition of that. Uh, yeah, it's actually a, a somewhat overloaded term. Um, People talk, have been talking about hackers in computing for decades, and hackers historically meant people who were kind of technically proficient, especially at the low-level stuff, the stuff that the ordinary you know, member of the public would struggle with. So a hacker was somebody who sort of tried to get computers to do unusual things. And we still have that term in the industry. So people in, in computer science in the industry often see hacker as almost a positive term. It's, you know, somebody who tries to take a device, maybe a consumer device, and use it in a way it wasn't intended. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's invention. That's innovation. But it's also used, of course, for taking those kind of skills and applying them in a negative way, applying them to do something nasty. So, you know, obviously that also historically has involved being able to do, you know, reverse engineer things, take things, and that can be done for good or for bad. So you can take something, some device, and you can use it in an unintended way. And that could be a good or a bad thing. So my definition of hacker is somebody who does 
that kind of unintended or technically complicated task. Um, of course, it's often used in the security world and in the general public to refer to doing that in a bad way. Um, John, on the subject of hackers, there's a concept of white hat and black hat hackers. Could you maybe describe what those are? Because even inside the term hacker, there's a lot of subdivisions. Yes. So white hat, black hat and grey hat would be different colours that are associated with types of hackers and the type of attacks that they conduct. So white hat hackers would be people who have the permission to do the actual hacking. So it's what you'd hear people calling ethical hackers or penetration testers, people who've maybe worked for a company or have been hired by that company to go and carry out these attacks to try and find vulnerabilities. Then you have black hat uh, hackers, which would be people who are doing it usually for malicious or nefarious types of purposes. And they usually wouldn't have permission to go and carry out these attacks. Then sometimes you have people in the middle what would be called grey hat hackers. And grey hat would be people who are perhaps doing it for good reasons or positive reasons, but don't actually have permission to go and do it. Okay, so a white hat hacker is like, say, for example, Bank of Ireland wanted somebody to test out their new system. They might go to you or Jimmy or Judy and say, hey, can you see if you can find any vulnerabilities here? And you would purposefully try to get into their system to stop a black hat hacker finding that vulnerability at a later date. Exactly. Uh, and the grey hat hacker is somebody who would just do it because they were interested in it, but not necessarily because they were authorised, but equally they're not necessarily in that bad guy camp. Is that correct? Yes. And sometimes companies have what are called bug bounties. And these are programmes where it's open to anybody to go and see if they can find a vulnerability in their system. But um, people need to be careful of those kind of things as well, because some companies see it as a threat. If somebody finds a vulnerability in their system, they then go to it. And there has been issues where companies have taken these kind of things to the guard and thought that there's a potential that somebody's going to try and blackmail them over some vulnerability. I think it comes down to consent. I think if you have the consent of whoever's providing the service or whoever owns that product, then you're clearly okay. So if you're one of John's white hat hackers that's doing a penetration test on behalf of the bank, you have consent to do that. You're doing that for them. Or if it's your own equipment, it's something you've got at home, some code you're writing yourself, of course you have, you know, that's implied. But if you're going to some random site on the internet or you know some public service that doesn't have a bug bounty program that has very strict terms and conditions about how you can test it, look for vulnerabilities. If that's the case, then that's not good. That's the, that's the bad stuff. Judy, can I hit you with one more term that you might explain for us? Because I think it's going to come up again and again, so we might as well get it out of the way now. Sure. What's, encry what's encryption? Um, so encryption is a process of maybe using uh, some form of algorithm to change plain text, so ordinary um data into an unreadable format. Um, so something that maybe you were trying to protect, um, a sensitive information, you would encrypt that sensitive information so that um, other users would not be able to gain access or read that information without um, authorization. 
uh, for example, without the key that you would give them. So there's different forms of encryption used over the years um, and it's getting better and better every day. Um, but it's, it's data back to early, early days when people were trying to hide secrets and they would encrypt those secrets so that um, travellers on their way would not be able to read the messages. So when you were talking about early days, we're talking about way before computing. I mean, I, I could be wrong about this now, and, and if I am, please correct me, but there's the, the, probably the most famous encryption system is the Caesar cipher. Most primary school children would use it, and I think that does date back to Roman times, which is hence why it's called Caesar. And that's just basically where you substitute one letter for another. So A becomes H, and so on and so on and so on. And then the idea is if somebody intercepted that message, it would just look, look like gobbledygook. Um, but then if you were able to decrypt it and you knew that A was H and B was I, you could re uh, unencrypt it, decrypt it at the other end. Is that correct? Exactly. Um, so absolutely. Uh, Jimmy actually was the first person who ever introduced me to <laughs> encryption when he was lecturing me in college. Um, and I also, uh, John, introduced it in the form of uh, recommended books to read. I remember reading a great book on uh, the Enigma machine from World War II and um, during my college term, which I found very enjoyable. And it's actually a great way to get kids interested in um computing. Um, I have done um, the same notes that Jimmy gave me. I have emulated those notes and have t uh, done it with students who have visited Red Hat on numerous occasions. So we have gone through Caesar, Cypher and Railfence technique and things like that. And just to show them very s simplistic form of how to hide or encrypt data or maybe hide information in their diaries that they don't want parents to read and so forth. So, And they found it really interesting and it's a great way of engaging people. Um, and it's actually quite an interesting topic. Um, I'm sure Jimmy or John would have a more in-depth knowledge of um, the teaching techniques of encryption, but um, it's something that's very much to the forefront and uh, Red Hat and any companies who uh, look after customer information, customer data, and especially with GDPR in place, it's very important that we use it in both in transit. So when we're shifting and moving uh, information across trusted boundaries and also at rest. So when we're actually storing information that is encrypted at rest so that um dare I say the term hacker again, but somebody who is unauthorized to view this information or use this information or gain access to in information that they wouldn't be able to do so or wouldn't be able to read it if they did gain access to it. So that that's the uses of it, the daily uses of it, of what we are trying to protect against on a daily basis. Yeah, I suppose you were talking, Judy, about kids and how, you know, kids are kind of inspired a little bit by encryption. It's actually a really simple idea because it's really anything that transforms data in a way that a casual observer can't make sense of it is encryption. So if I take a message, if I get my one of my children to take take a message and write it backwards, you know, if I just read, see those those characters, those letters written backwards, you know, without a little bit of investigation, I don't know what's going on. Now, that's obviously easy to break. And, you know, we could have a whole big, long discussion about what makes a, a cipher or what makes an encryption scheme, you know, unbreakable. And that's a, you know, that's beyond the scope, I think, of what we talk about today. But, you know, ultimately, that's what it is. It's transforming data in a way that a, a passerby can't, can't make sense of it. So 
I suppose what's important here is at this stage we've defined some terms, but we're also setting the scene that security and issues around security are predate computing. It's not that this is only something that has arrived on the scene because of computing. These issues have been there for human civilization right back to the year dot, but perhaps they've become much more... Um, uh, we're, we're much more aware of them as we live in a world of vastly more information and we, we, we present so much of our lives, personal, professional, etc., etc., in an interconnected online computer-based world. So that's maybe why security is, and IT security, is such a hot topic. Yeah, just a little point about encryption um, that often is discussed and often comes up. You know, computer-based encryption doesn't solve all the world's problems. If I have really, really good encryption from, you know, my web browser to the website I'm visiting, so I'm visiting my online bank and I'm entering my passwords and all the rest of it, and I've got really good encryption, that's not necessarily enough. Somebody could be logging my keystrokes. So somebody could have installed some malicious software on my machine and it could be capturing every keystroke. And you can have the best encryption in the world and it doesn't solve the problem. So it's worth being aware of that as well, that unless encryption is, you know, from when the messaging is conceived in your head till it arrives at the destination, um, you know, their encryption is not the answer to everything. But of course, it's important. So there's lots of areas where there can be a vulnerability. And I suppose the trick is trying to minimize them as best as possible, as as well as possible. I know, as I said, I know very little about computing security, very little indeed. And but I have seen this thing referenced called the CIA model. That's nothing to do with the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, Judy, you're nodding your head there now going, yes, CIA. Uh, <laughs> could you maybe explain what the CIA model is? Sure. This is something that I actually use on a daily basis in my role. So CIA for C for confidentiality. Um, I is for integrity and A is for availability. So um, when we're talking about confidentiality, we've been talking about encryption. Um, one of the main tasks that we follow when we're doing threat modeling um, is the stride model. And in that, it's information disclosure is for I is information disclosure. And confidentiality is actually what we're trying to protect, trying to avoid leaking information into areas that are, again, as we explained, area to people who are not authorized to see it. Um, then we have integrity. We're looking for situations that um, we're hoping that people will not be able to and protect the data and to uh, ensure that it is correct from the time it leaves somebody to the time it arrives to somebody else. So we want to make sure that the information can't be changed. I'm trying to explain this properly. We want to ensure that the information can't be modified by anybody when it's either in transit or at rest. Um, so that if I have contracts sent out to me in the post and they give me a hundred grand salary and I can change this to 150 grand salary and send it back to them. You know, that's not going to, um, or somebody else could do it on my behalf. That's not, uh, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the integrity of the data. So that, um, and then availability. So we're talking about, I'm looking for things like uh, resilience. So uh, how resilient is the infrastructure that our uh, customers are working on can this is there a way of bringing down the systems that stop the um 
users of our infrastructure getting their daily job done. Um, and for those kind of things, we're looking at um, avoid resource exhaustion and so forth. So um, I hope I explained that correctly. No, I think you have, but I, I, I'm just going to kind of say it back to you to make sure I have it right in my head. So CIA of confidentiality, integrity and availability is really a prism through which we can view potential security threats. Is that is that correct? Exactly. So uh, for threat modelling in particular for what I do in work, um, we follow um, a stride model. So it's S for spoofing, T for tampering. So the tampering aspect is actually goes directly for integrity. So and there is to stop people from tampering exactly with the information and to making sure that the information, the integrity of it is um, holds correctly. Um, and information disclosure then links to confidentiality and denial of services, um, another part of the Stride model, and that links directly to availability. So it's to ensure that um, systems are able to carry out their duty as they are expected and not being able to be brought down by some kind of um, attack on the system against either the system resources or so forth. John, Judy mentioned a term there that I, I actually forgot to include in our list of terms at the start, but you might describe it for us, um, which is denial of service. C- could you maybe explain what that is? Yeah, so a denial of service attack, Rob, means to take some service or some functionality on your computer and to make it unavailable to the users. So it can be done by tying up, for example, the processor on the computer so that it cannot carry out instructions or execute tasks for you. Or it could be that all the bandwidth going to and from the computer on the network gets clogged up with messages or with traffic, so that traffic from the internet, for example, can't be sent back and forth. And by doing this, the attacker manages to tie up all the resources on the system and services or functionality becomes unavailable to the people trying to use it. So a denial of service attack is usually when it comes from one individual source. But what we've seen more in the last decade is distributed denial of service attacks. And that's where um, armies of computers or IoT type devices around the world get infected with some sort of malware. And then based on some trigger executing like a time, all the malware steps up and activates and carries out the attack. So they all decide to attack this one service at the same time. So, so would this be an example of, or if I'm if I'm getting you correct, let's say I wrote a, I hacked together a nefarious program that I somehow managed to install on the three of your machines or whatever, however I did it. And let's say at, you know, 1 p.m. on uh, Friday, on the 31st of December, that the program was triggered to flood www.wit.ie with requests. So it received so many requests that it wouldn't be able to respond to genuine requests from people trying to seek the website. Is it, would that be correct? That's it. Exactly. And in a couple of instances, these kind of things have happened by accident. So a few years ago, when the CAO moved online, there was a, the first year of it, there was a deadline for the 28th of February or whatever. And all the potential CEO applicants all went online 
coming to the evening of the 28th of February and tried to submit their applications. And what ended up happening was that inadvertently a denial of service attack was carried out on the CAO by the applicants. So that's why these days you see them trying to encourage people to submit it over the week or two beforehand, not to leave it until the last minute. So so a, a denial of service attack mightn't always be necessarily for nefarious reasons. It might just be because a system is overloaded and therefore the service is denied. The best example I can think of, and I'm sure we've all been there, is where you're trying to get concert tickets, you know, and you're trying to log on for nine o'clock to get your tickets for Electric Picnic or, or whoever it is. And of course, everyone is trying to get on at the same time and you're sitting there looking at a web page that's not displaying. I just want to say that a lot of things in computer science and security actually have real world analogies. And Donald Service is a really good example. If you want to drive through Thurlis at three o'clock on Monster Final Day or five o'clock, you're going to get stuck in traffic, right? That's the reality. That's almost like denial of service. And actually, sometimes Pete, there are also kind of attacks like denial of service attacks in the real world. If the farmers are not happy with some government policy, they might bring all the tractors to Dublin and drive around, you know, the centre of Dublin, and then people can't can't function with their normal traffic. Um, that's a denial of service attack. It's not using computers, but it's exactly the same idea. Which again goes back to what we were talking about before, that computer security and regular security really go hand in hand. Absolutely. Um, So I think that's certainly what I'm getting from this conversation so far. Listening to Jimmy and John explaining all these terms brings me back to classroom days when, and I can see the difference in the two boys, they, their experience in explaining them, these terms, but yet me dealing with them on a daily basis and the teachers, the lecturers in them, um, and how, how clear and concise they're able to, um, explain and the analogies that they have to explain them, to make them into real world problems. So that's easier for people like me when I was learning to understand. So, uh, yeah, it's bringing me back a little bit. And, and of course, I'm not explaining these on a daily basis. And I, I now when I sit down to think about them, it, it reminds me of how hard it is to actually explain these to break it down to um, real life examples, I suppose. But, but I suppose what's, what's maybe different, though, Judy, is that Okay, the lads are used to talking about it, but you're actually used to doing it. So yeah, your yeah. your role is your security architect with Red Hat. Like, c- could you maybe take us through a typical day? Or you know, I know I know there's no such thing as a typical day, but could you maybe take us through the kind of typical kind of work that you do with respect to computer security? Yeah, sure. So. Um I'm a threat modeler with Red Hat, but I work for the product security managed services team. So what we do is we um, look after the onboarding of services that Red Hat actually manage on behalf of our customers. So what we give out our software, give away our software for free, and then we sell a subscription for two companies who would like to um, transfer the year technical aspect or the security risk and so forth back to Red Hat for us to manage it on be, on their behalf. And there's many different reasons for this. It could either cost or they mightn't have the uh, bandwidth or the technical knowledge or technical experience. So for it's a very, it's only one area of Red Hat's business, the managed services business. So that's just to set the scene of the area that I work in. So we're, um, Red Hat are carrying the risk solely for the management and the security. 
majority of the customers that we're selling this subscription to. So the managed services team has broken up into three kind of areas. So we look after security architecture reviews. Um, so kind of in an in-depth um, understanding of how uh, the product or service is actually built. Um, and then we have threat modeling, which is what, what I do is we review the architecture and we literally go and try and break it. So we're coming, I come to it with the glass half full kind of attitude. And I'm really trying to look for areas that entry points into the system that somebody else might try and enter a data flow uh, of the system where we're crossing trust boundaries, but also what kind of data that the system is actually holding. So what kind of com- customer information are we handling? And is it sensitive customer inf- information? And the difference between the types of information is sensitive customer information is personally identified information um, that uh, would become under compliance issues like GDPR or just ordinary data that um, wouldn't really be used by or be any good to anybody if they got it. So there's different types of and risk a form to different types of data that the services might manage. And then we do pen testing. So penetration testing is what John was talking about earlier when we have white, what they're called, maybe white hackers. So they're authorized. We're authorized to go in and actually um, penetrate the system. So what would be, so Judy, on that topic then, what would be the kind of most common security threat that you would encounter so when i'm when we're looking at the security of the services initially we're not really coming we're not looking at the threats that we're going to actually face so we're not coming from the threat actor's point of view, because we're never really going to fully understand or really keep up with all the threats that are ever going to come at us. So what we're trying to do is actually take the security posture and make it as secure, like with going back to the confidentiality, integrity and availability. So to the best of our ability to make that as secure and harden harden the posture of the service as much as possible. So to reduce any risk. So at the end of the day, what I think is really coming to the forefront in security is how to manage risk. And um, this was quite new to me, a new concept to me, that it's not just about finding threats or not just about finding vulnerabilities or indeed flaws in the system. It's actually about um, managing the risk and what kind of an impact are these vulnerabilities or flaws or a threat actor might bring to the business? So you might find a flaw or a vulnerability in the system. So your data might not be encrypted at risk or or you might find another flaw in a system um, that the data is not encrypted in transit. But it depends on the data, right? And it depends on the access to those um, areas. And what we're trying to do is assess them as a holistic, a a complete overview of the possibility, the potential of that being attacked uh, based on the likelihood or the potential or the likelihood of that being attacked uh, against the impact that it might have to the business. And then we try and explain back to the engineers the different levels of risk that um, it would cause to the service. So 
what it does is it allows engineers or business units at a very early stage to focus their security um efforts against the highest risks and the highest impacts, uh, against the highest impact that it might have um, on the service. So so what I'm hearing there, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and any of you, is that it's not a case that something is secure or unsecure. It's really, there's a continuum and there's an element of risk associated with that. And also, there's probably an element as to how valuable something is as to the level of security on it. I mean, for example, uh, I might have my banking details. Those are obviously very valuable because there's a financial issue uh, tied up with that. Whereas I also have um, an MP3 collection here on my computer. Uh, It's not probably, I mean, it might be personally valuable to me, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not very valuable. So therefore, the level of security and the level of risk associated with that is significantly less than my banking details. Would that be correct, Jimmy? Yeah, I suppose the first thing to say is there's never perfect security. If someone promises perfect security, they're lying, basically. (laughs) Um, It's about having, you know, doing a threat model, doing the kind of thing that Judy does and having appropriate protections for that for those threats and nothing is perfect yeah i think it's really important i i, I often just my friends ask me what i do uh, when i told them i work for red hat they often thought they thought i worked in a clothes shop first of all but <laughs> when they, when i told them i was a threat modeler they were like oh my gosh you know what is threat modeling um so how I try and describe it to people is like we we all threat model on a daily basis before we leave our house. So if you're looking at if you're going out to the shop or you're going to work and you're going to leave your door unopened or your windows unlocked. I mean, that's your very, very basic perimeter security. That's the first one that you think of. But then you're looking at security in depth, what we call. And Jimmy alluded to it earlier that it's not just about encrypting something in transit, but it might be uh, different forms of security to an overall service. So when you're thinking about a house again, just to go back as I explain it to my friends. um, So if I had a hundred grand sitting on my hall floor, just sitting there and you can peek through the windows and I leave my door open and the windows are open um, and that hundred grand is sitting there for the world to see, you know, that's a higher risk kind of situation. But you're, you're also thinking not just about, should I put that into a safe behind a locked door, behind a locked window? Should I have an alarm in my house? You're thinking about who's going to be passing by. So is it the guy walking up and down the road for his daily walks, just going to check the handles every day? Or is there somebody, you know, going to do a full reconnaissance mission, you know, a professional burglar going to, to really want this money, know that I have it and know that it's going to be really valuable to him. So it's all about, um, you know, there's so many different aspects to think of with threat modeling. That's fine. That's why it's so interesting, I suppose, to me that there's so many different scenarios that you can come up with. And some of them are quite risky and some of them are low risk. Some of the threats, you know, what can you rob from me? But if I'm a company and I have, I'm storing, you know, personal data belong to a hospital, that's high risk data, right? If, but if it's, 
just somebody who's not, you know, storing data that doesn't identify somebody. Uh, that's low risk data. So there's different forms of data that are different forms of protection that you want. So that's my house analogy. And when you're, I'm trying to explain it. Um, but yeah, that's I hope that made sense. No, it does. It makes a lot of sense because I suppose I can I can imagine a house. I know what a house is. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the more kind of intangible computer security issues, I, I, I have a hard time getting a handle of because I don't really understand them and maybe I can't conceptualise them. Um, so, so maybe I, I, I might put this question to John, uh, although if any of you feel like jumping in, please do. Like, so, John, like, I mean, you're you're a lecturer, you're a security researcher. Um, I mean, you did your PhD in this area. What are the kind of hot topics? And I'm using air quotes there because I'm not sure if, if it really if the term really applies. But what are the hot topics in computer security today? And maybe what are some of the trends that you've seen over the last while? I suppose the hot topics are always the new and emerging kind of areas. Um, as they come along, they always bring new avenues for people to attack a new way to get into things. So I suppose we've had a big advance in cloud. Everybody now has wearable devices and IoT type technologies that all speak to the cloud. So if somebody gets access to your Google Cloud account, they can get access to stuff that perhaps is on your phone. They can see stuff that you maybe thought was just on your browser. They can get access to password lists. So there's all these different components to it. Then we have things like the IoT type devices and there was issues with VTech toys. So, sorry, can I just ago. stop you there for one second, John? What's, could you just maybe say what the, the IoT, what that term means? So IoT is Internet of Things. And by things, we mean all these small devices. So it's everything from light bulbs in your house to Alexa and Google Home devices to smart TVs, washing machines and tumble dryers that you can control with your phone when you're out and about all these different types of technologies. And all of these have little computers inside them and have internet access and can speak to things like Google's cloud and Amazon's cloud and Apple's cloud and all these different companies. So they're all holding data relating to you and relating to your actions. Some of the other things as well would be the advent of 5G. So 5G is going to have an impact because people will be able to do things very, very quickly. So if you're trying to get information out of, a, out of a company as an attacker, you can steal that information much quicker. So going back to Jimmy's analogies of the roads, it'd be like trying to steal the data in a truck and driving down a very narrow road or stealing the data with a very big truck that's very fast and driving it down a motorway. Then we have what's going to be one of the very hot topics for the next couple of years is homeworking. So homeworking has become huge this year due to the COVID pandemic. But there's lots of issues going to crop up there that people haven't thought out properly. So lots of companies are allowing people to go home, use their home laptop to access the company networks and the corporate networks that they work for. But if those laptops aren't properly secured, they're not properly patched, they're not properly up to date, they're not properly encrypted, then what's going to happen is those laptops or those devices now become the weakest point in the chain of security that that company has. So companies have to think about those kind of things and they have to invest properly 
And if they do invest properly, they will get the payback and the rewards from it. But it's important that they take those kind of things into consideration. Yeah, so um, I, I totally agree with what John said about Internet of Things. I think all these wearable devices, all these cameras that are around the place, all these smart home devices, you know, introduce a whole lot of new threat models for people, a whole lot of new threats. You know, a lot of the thinking of computer security that has developed over the last 20, 30 years has been assuming that people are using, you know, PCs and laptops and phones connected to websites. But that's totally changed. We're using devices now to connect to these home devices. We're using home devices to connect back to the internet. So it's very different. A lot of these devices are very portable. They have microphones, they have cameras, you know, so there's all sorts of privacy implications. So that's a whole big trend. Another trend that's a bit more mundane, but is actually a big issue, is email security. So email is not a very exciting topic. It's been around for a couple of decades. It's one of the first internet services people used. But it's become really, really important. And that's because we all rely on our email account as our kind of entry point to all these services. If I want to reset my credentials on anything, if I want to, you know, get into my account for my online banking or my you know, fitness tracking service or whatever I use, it's all about my email account being the kind of entry point and being the, uh, you know, reset password kind of touch point. So, you know, everyone needs to be securing their email accounts. I'm really careful about managing their, their, their main email account, the one they use for all those things. That's a really significant topic. People are being defrauded all the time with invoice fraud. So businesses are getting a message. It looks like it's from you. You know, you have a, you're, you're a business, you have a vendor, they're sending you a bill every month, you pay the bill, right? The problem is you get an email saying, oh, our, our bank account has changed. Please make all future payments to this IBAN. And suddenly there's a big payment coming at the end of the month for 20,000 euros and it's going to the wrong IBAN. And because people aren't verifying emails, email is inherently not very secure. And, you know, you receive an email, it's very easy to spoof it to make it look like it came from somebody else. So that's that's a big problem, I would say. And it's a big trend in both at the kind of corporate level, but also individual. What, what I kind of think is really interesting about that is what you've described there is is quite low tech. I mean, I, I mean, it's not very sexy. I mean, you think of computer security and you're thinking about, you know, glamorous Hollywood productions or, or you know, sexy TV shows or breaking codes in World War Two. And now you're talking about somebody send money to this IBAN and you go, OK, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so low tech. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and just to, to actually, that's a very good point. And, you know, I know some of the listeners to this podcast might be, you know, students or people are studying computer security or maybe people who are thinking about, you know, getting into this at some point. And I suppose a really important point is that the kind of Hollywood uh, thriller kind of picture of the evil genius as being the, the hacker or the kind of, you know, not evil genius as being the, the person working in security. That's totally false. The, the, the hackers, the people who are doing the attacks are organized criminals, you know, people who are professional criminals, basically, not necessarily very technical. They can outsource a lot of that technical stuff to others. And the, the, uh, the defenders are looking at stuff like processes, policies. That's not very exciting. You don't need to be a technical genius to write policies, but it's defining who can do what and when. Um, stuff like um, uh, uh, security awareness is a big topic. So just educating users on good practices like for example having a good password on their email account don't trust stuff that 
comes from an unauthenticated source. Um, have multi-factor authentication, which means, you know, if you've got a, if your Gmail account is your, you jump into your Amazon and all the other services you use, you know, make sure you, you, you can't get at that account. If somebody steals your password, they have to get a text message or with a code or something like that. So that's, it's, it's actually a really, really hot topic at the moment. Well, we, we might explore that then, just maybe about some of the, because what you've talked about there are very practical tips. I was going to ask you about them in a few minutes, but since it, seeing as you've introduced me, we might as well go with it now. About like kind of, okay, so there's, there's institutional security, which is what Judy is doing. But there's also, I suppose, personal security, the things that I as an individual can do. So would you maybe have some tips how I can secure my data, my computer usage? Um, Jimmy, since we started with you, we might as well carry on with you. But the others can come in because I know you probably have certainly things to say on this topic. Yeah, so I'd say kind of maybe maybe I'll keep it to three things. Right. One is secure your main email account with a good password and another factor so that you have to get a text or you have to get something if you access from another device. So that if somebody steals your password with a key logger or something like that, they can't get in your account. That's really important. The second thing I'd say is that any device you have that's a portable device, so that's your laptop or your phone, if you lose that device, it's really important that nobody can get access to the data on it. And that means very simply with your phone having a pin. It's usually the default, but I know people who've got phones and there's no pin on the phone. So if you don't have a pin lock or a fingerprint lock or whatever it is, or facial recognition lock, if somebody can pick up the phone and start getting into your email on the phone, that's a big problem. Or if it's a as a laptop, most laptops, if you buy a laptop in you know Harvey Norman or somewhere, it probably doesn't have full disk encryption turned on. And that means if somebody gets their hands on the laptop, even if you've a really good password, they can get access to the files on the laptop. So that's something that people should be doing is securing, because if you lose the laptop or leave it somewhere, that's a problem. So that's, the first point is, is email security. The second is devices. And the third one I'd say is just generally don't trust stuff. So there's a big, and this applies everywhere from reading emails to what you see on social media. And this is a big political as well as social kind of comment. But, you know, fake news is, has been the, the keyword, the byword of the last four or five years. That applies to anything you see online. You know, the old, uh, there's a really old uh, cartoon from the New Yorker magazine. It's actually from 1993, and it's quite famous in the security world. And it's two dogs behind a computer screen. And one is saying to the other, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. That's just as valid today as it was 27 years ago when it was written. It's actually more valid today. Those are excellent. Those are like really practical tips. I mean, I can do that. Um, I'm, I'm actually hope I'm quite happy that of, of those three tips that you mentioned, I have two of them already in place. So I, I two out of three ain't bad, as they say. Uh, John, have you any kind of good tips for personal responsibility or issues that you can do with your own personal uh, computer security? Yeah, I suppose one, Rob, would be one that everyone's probably heard a load of times before. Don't use the same password for everything. And <laughs> that's actually quite hard to do in practice unless you use what's called a password manager. So a password manager is a small piece of software you install in your computer, and for that you have a master password. And the master password lets you open it up, and it just appears like a little table or a little database that you can select the website URL that you want, and it'll have your username and your password in there that you can use. And as long as you keep that master password safe, then you will be able to securely access everything and you will 
also have a different password for everything. So it's a very easy way to do it. And there's lots of different ones out there to have a go at. Yeah, so this would be like one password or, or even there's some like on the Apple devices, there's one built into it. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that it will automatically generate a password for some system. Like say I'm signing up to jimmysautoparts.com, right? Uh, and I have to create an account there. And this can, this will generate a password and it might be a big long string of gobbledygook uh, as opposed to my master password that is pencil. Right, which which is I know it's not a good password, um, or one two three four five six. Uh, so the idea is that even if somebody does get my password for Jimmy's Auto Parts, the password that I'm using for Judy's Red Hat Boutique is different. So even if you even if you get compromised in one area, you're not compromised necessarily somewhere else. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Judy, have you any top tips for personal responsibility? Um, yeah, there's a couple of things. Actually, it's interesting that you divide um, the institutional responsibility against personal responsibility. I think the two of them go hand in hand, especially with the topic of, of what a lot of people working from home. So absolutely, you know, the uh, corporations, they're accountable for uh, the security of their systems but people working for them have to have a certain amount of personal responsibility um, so corporations need to provide training for their, for their employees so that they understand that if they do click on the link or as Jimmy described you know sending money being fished by an email and sending money off to um, some not authorised person to have that money. There are types of things that you have to be responsible when you're working to understand this. So it's up to the corporations to train people. So my friends asked me again, I'm going to, I'm going to, there's three very simple things I had said to my friends. I have two kids. So secure the human is a big thing for me because I have to secure my kids um, because they're, you know, they're online everywhere. They're just, they live for it. So my little boy, I have his accounts linked up to my accounts because he set up a YouTube account unknown to me. And I got an email to say he had posted a video. When I checked the video, he had given a full tour of my house, room by room on um, on his YouTube account. So, you know, if I hadn't have had that set up that I hadn't got an email to so and this works for companies as well i'm giving simple examples but this is also works for logging for companies if somebody in a company does something and you don't have that logged how are you going to know what they did or you know that comes back to repudiation or non-repudiation for so making ensuring that you know who does what when um also um jimmy was talking about laptops this is actually very real. My sister's house was broken into last year and her laptop with all her baby photographs were stolen and she had no backups. So maybe backup information that's important to you. Um, so, you know, Dropbox or Google Photos or wherever, you know, that's um, OneDrive, whatever is important to you. Um, and again, that's important to corporate companies. You need to have backups of your data in case that your systems do crash or, 
you know, something happens. So you need to be able to recover very quickly. So um, disaster recovery. So you can see the crossover between personal security and um, everyday security, you know, or corporate security. Also, um, my kids, I say, you know, if you're going to a cafe or if you're working for a cafe, don't use public Wi-Fi. Um, so if you're sitting in a cafe having a cup of coffee, especially when we're all working from home now more, it's people I have often seen people not in lockdown, but I've often seen people use their laptops in cafe settings. How many of those are sending unencrypted emails? How many of those are logging in with using their bank details with hotspots from cafes that they don't trust? So, um, you know, use your own private hotspot. Don't use cafes, Wi-Fi. And um, also screen sharing. If you are out and about um, and you have your laptop on a desk, make sure somebody's not peeking over your shoulder. If I'm looking, if I have my um, infrastructure belong to my company and I'm in a cafe and I'm working and somebody can look over my shoulder and see what's on my screen, that's not very secure. So there's very simple things that you need to be thinking of um, between your work life and your personal life that actually cross over. What I'm hearing there is, I I hate to say it because it sounds so reductive, but in everything that the three of you said, there's an awful lot of cop on associated with it. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be dismissive. I mean, somebody who's not using a one uh, like a password manager, I'm not saying they're thick or anything like that. They might know what it is and they might know how to use it. But it, it, a lot of it sounds simple. Um, and also, again, what you were talking, what Jimmy was talking about earlier about kind of spoofing attacks and people just getting nonsense in the post is kind of maybe employing a healthy skepticism. Not, not not for everything, but maybe for everything. I don't know. Jimmy, what do you think? Just to summarize, I suppose, in one respect, it's it's kind of a cool area to be in because it combines kind of, you know, technical know-how with the kind of human factor psychology, almost. I, I know really, I, I'm an amateur psychologist, but I do find myself having to, you know, think about the way people think about things when I do a security analysis. Um, also, you know, as business aspects, as Judy has referred to, organizational kind of policies and procedures and all that. So it's kind of a bit of business it's a bit of technical computing, a bit of engineering, also a bit of psychology and a bit of kind of human uh, human interaction and all that in it as well. So it's a, it, it's an area that has actually brings a lot of kind of disciplines together, if you like, um, mm. in, in, in uh, if you want to think of academic disciplines, for example. Right. Uh, final question for each of you. I mean, there's been numerous famous data breaches or attacks uh, all across the world in, in computer security over the last number of years. Is there any ones that stand out for you particularly? Maybe you have a favourite one for whatever reason, um, if, if you know what I mean. Um, so I don't know, maybe, John, we might go to you first if you have like a, a famous attack that you quite like or you think is 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 particularly illustrative. Well, it's not um, that famous really, but there was a report from a company called Trend Micro lately and they were looking at uh, cyber criminal activities over COVID. And one of the things that they came across was that cyber criminals in their spare time have been entertaining themselves during COVID with online rap battles, poker tournaments, poetry competitions, and in-person sports tournaments, which were largely MMA fights. And that the prizes (laughs) for these competitions was personally identifiable information. 
So things like credit card data files, um, other pieces of information about people like that. And they were having these as the prizes for the competitions. Online rap battles. Wow. <laughs> I was not expecting to hear that. <laughs> um, Judy, is there anyone that stands out for you particularly or anything like that? Yeah, it's not a major hack or anything, but it is. I just I find it very interesting when you're moving to new technologies, especially with COVID. So, for example, all of us had to turn our meetings to Zoom, like what we're doing today. Um, there was a very... Um, hot topic of Boris Johnson sharing his Zoom meeting online, uh, which wasn't very secure. But it, it's the simplicity of t- taking a photograph and posting it to your Twitter account and how insecure that could be. So when you're so unaware of the information that you might be sharing. Um, also, I was on um, a Zoom meeting with a security company trying to sell uh, Red Hat, a security product, and we got Zoom bombed by their next customers. They hadn't locked the meeting um, and obviously had shared the same ID with the next people. So we were sitting there on a meeting, a crowd of us, and I noticed an extra few people had joined late, very late in the in the meeting. Um, and we're just sitting there listening. <laughs> and I was like, you know, who are you? So Unless you're aware of what's going on. I mean, you know, we weren't sharing really secure information, but it just shows you how easily it can actually happen that people can sneak on to meetings and just sit there and listen to conversations. And you're you're just not aware that or people mightn't be aware that it's actually happening. So I find the use of new technologies, you know, some... For example, Zoom and people's lack of understanding of how they actually work and what's actually happening and how they're actually used and how insecure they can be if not used correctly. Um, And I know Jimmy has um, a a great understanding of uh, Zoom meetings. Um, Yeah, I'm actually just going to mention one breach that is... um, if, if you're asking me to, to pick a breach that stands out, and that was a breach that stands out purely for the scale of it. So Yahoo, a lot of you have probably had a Yahoo account at some point, a Yahoo email or other Yahoo account. Yahoo had a data breach that started in 2013. And by the end of it, 3 billion accounts were compromised. So I'm not sure how many households there are in the world. You know, I mean, the population of the world is whatever, about 8 billion. But there are a lot of those people are children. A lot of them don't have access to electricity, let alone computers. So I'd say that pretty much covered a very high proportion of the people in the world who use computers. Three billion accounts were compromised. Um, so maybe that's maybe that says enough. <laughs> wow. Um, that's freaking me out now. Uh, the, I, th- I was trying to think of one myself, but it's kind of hard to... To, to come up with it because I'm not really in the security space. But I do remember a couple of years ago getting a notification from Sony uh, for the PlayStation account. Not that I get to play video games much anymore. But Sony had a major, major hack. Uh, and there was all sorts of data released. Um, but there were a lot of PlayStation accounts were compromised. Um, and, uh, you know, change your password, etc., etc. I don't know to what level the data was flooded out there onto the internet. But when John is talking about personal information, credit card information being offered up as prizes for online rap battles, I'm wondering, is my data in there somewhere? (laughs) I don't know. Um, So if somebody wanted to learn more about computer security, 
is there anywhere you'd recommend them to go besides maybe coming and studying with you guys is there any one place you'd recommend that they 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 go well I think LinkedIn Learning is a great place to start. They offer so many courses for so many different topics. Um, I know, you know, Red Hat even offered those um, courses to their employees. So um, they're very easy to understand. They're very easy to follow. Um, and they're very short is what I like. They're usually only five or six minutes long in a series. So you can drop in and out of them. Um, there's, YouTube is great. Um, and look, the internet is there for everybody. It's, I went through four years of college and I certainly, uh, YouTube was a great help to me for so many different things. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I would start. I just start reading and being interested. Actually, if anybody is interested in trying out any kind of security, um, there's great capture the flags competitions and things like that, that you can follow and the solutions are on YouTube. So you can actually set them up and just kind of try them and work the solution, not even try to hack into them. But, you know, just follow the solution and try and gain a kind of understanding of how systems are actually built and the protocols that they actually use and how they actually talk to each other. And, um, yeah. I suppose a lot of the stuff that I read is a bit technical, so I won't burden you with that. Um, there, A lot of people are... You know, concerned about their own personal security. I would say some of the government kind of stuff, like the, the data protection office, which is you know a government agency, they have just really good practical stuff there. It's dataprotection.ie, I think, both for you, for ordinary citizens, but also for businesses who are trying to you know make sure they're GDPR compliant and that kind of thing. Um, I think that that content is good. Um, there's a company called Sans S A N S. They're a security kind of training specialist company, but they, they have a, a security awareness. Uh, you know, they have a lot of technical stuff, but they have a security awareness initiative. So they have lots of resources for people to kind of promote security awareness. So if you're a company and you want your employees to observe good practices, you know, like maintain good passwords, you know, don't trust stuff you shouldn't trust. They've got nice kind of posters and um, leaflets and stuff that you can kind of circulate to employees to uh, encourage them to be more security aware. So maybe that's something people might find useful. Yeah, as Judy was saying, YouTube is great for all this kind of stuff. And there's loads and loads of online tutorials for playing around with tools or things like Kali Linux operating system, those kind of things. If you want to test out a few things or do something a bit practical and play around with it, the internet is full of tutorials on those kind of things as well. And they're free. So it's a good place to start if you want to go and dip your toe in the water. Totally. And then after you've dipped your toe in the water uh, and you want to go a bit further, you can come in and uh, talk to the lads about a degree in computer forensics and security or what. And then you can go and work for Judy and Red Hat afterwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, just add, you don't have to do a security and forensic specialist degree. I mean, obviously, it's a really that's a really cool degree, but... Every computing student in WIT does at least one security module. So, you know, if you do computing in WIT, you will be exposed to security for, you know, a, a fairly a fairly detailed module at a, at a certain point, at least one and possibly more than one. Yeah, I would I, I would like to add as well, for those who don't know me, um, that I 
came back to college as a mature student in my 40s. So I was a banker in my previous life. So Shh, 20 years, yeah, tw- <laughs> 20 years working in a financial institution and completely changed careers, pivoted and headed towards security because I could see the change in the banking system and how security was coming to the forefront. So you know, this is not just for people who are leaving school. This is for anybody who is interested in pivoting now. And I know there's the government are putting loads of supports in place for people, um, especially after COVID and many people being unemployed. There's loads of supports in place and stepping stones to changing your career. Um, and um, yeah, definitely, definitely something to consider it. You know, it's hard work. I certainly wouldn't um, deny that the four years weren't tough work, but it's really worth it. And there's loads of jobs out there. So the industry is short of um, technical people who, who have a huge interest in this area and even shorter of girls. So we'd love to see loads of women um, coming in um, to the industry. Um, you know, there's something for everybody in it, uh, I think. And that's you know, something to remember. Plus one on that. Can't really argue there. Um, Lads, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you for your knowledge. Thanks for your expertise. Uh, The takeaway I'm getting from this is don't trust everything. Uh, Open your eyes. And as a discipline or as a topic, computer security is something we could pick up this conversation about in 20 years. And uh, there'll be still it's not it's not going to be something that's going to be solved uh, and again i'm using my air quotes there on that uh, thank you to judy thank you to john thank you to jimmy uh, i've just realized it's triple j i surely could have worked in some sort of a joke there into that but i'm not smart enough to think of that um <laughs> there's lots of resources out there online if anyone wants to learn more about computer security or you can find out more about us at wit.ie or you can go to uh, red hat's website redhat.com and there's buckets of stuff up there as well folks thank you so much for your time thanks Rob. thanks Rob. thank you rob